Hey, it's Guy here. So as some of you may know, I'm stepping down as host of TED Radio Hour after seven years. But we'll have a brand new host. Her name is Manusha Marodi, and she'll be starting in March. And right now she's working on a bunch of new episodes. In the meantime, I want to share some of my most favorite episodes of TED Radio Hour, including this one. It's called Peering into Space. And I have to admit, I love this one because my very young son is in it. He's a lot older now. But it's ultimately about the wonder of the universe. I mean, just imagine you look up at a star at night and you are actually seeing the past in real time. That light that hits you happened a long time ago. You're going to hear from physicist Brian Greene, writer Phil Plait, and astronomer Jill Tarter. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Come with me. Let's go outside. A couple of months ago, we bought our son a telescope. Okay, we're going outside. Now we have to be quiet, okay? Okay. And since then, he's gotten hooked. Okay, walk down. Totally obsessed with the stars. Do you want to open up your constellation book? We can't, but I have to, I have to write something inside. What's it? Again. Oh. Now I want to see... Oh, I see a red belt. Where? Star. Where? A, Where's the Ryan's belt? There's one star there. Oh, yeah. And another star oh, there. Yeah. One, two, three. We get, we were, hopefully this cloud is going to move over, but we can still see a lot. On a clear, dark night, even in the city where we live, you can still see about 100 stars in the sky just by looking up. What's your, um, what's your favorite planet? Um, Mars. How come? Because... Red, it, its color is red, and red's my favorite color. What's your favorite star? Um, Polaris and Sirius are my favorite stars. Maybe Sirius is Polaris's neighbor. I think they might be neighbors, yeah. Yes. Like a lot of kids, my son has this incredible curiosity about something I hadn't really thought about in years, the night sky. Look at the moon, though. Look how bright the moon is. It's even close to us. Yeah, very close. Welcome to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, we're going to hear from TED speakers who never lost that curiosity. People who look up at the sky every night, who think about the infinite possibilities out there in space. Are you cold? Yeah. Okay. All right. What do you want now? May I have some orange juice, please? Sure. So sometime in the future, and we're talking the far future, at some point there won't be anything to see beyond our galaxy. Distant space will appear pitch black, empty. And to understand why, physicist Brian Greene in his TED Talk explained that you've got to go back to the year 1929. When the great astronomer Edwin Hubble realized that the distant galaxies We're all rushing away from us, establishing that space itself is stretching. It's expanding. Now, this was 
revolutionary. The prevailing wisdom was that on the largest of scales, the universe was static. But even so, there was one thing that everyone was certain of. The expansion must be slowing down. Why? Well, gravity is an attractive force, right? You drop anything, it falls to the earth. You throw anything out a window, it falls down. Where gravity pulls things together. So similarly, gravity out there in the cosmos should be pulling each galaxy toward every other. So if they're rushing apart, they should rush apart slower and slower over time. It's sort of like you know, if you throw a baseball up in the air, it goes up, but it goes up slower and slower. So gravity of the exact same sort should be slowing the exodus of the galaxies. So in 1929, when 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 Hubble figures this out. It must have blown people's minds. I mean, I mean, people assumed that the universe was was basically our galaxy, and then Hubble comes along. He says it's not, and it's growing. Yes, it was totally revolutionary. And in fact, there was a another fellow named Georges Lemaitre, who was a Belgian priest, who told Einstein that he was studying the math of Einstein's equations in general relativity, and the math seems to say that the universe should be expanding. Einstein said to him, "Your math is correct, but your physics is abominable." He was saying that you can't always trust the equations. In fact, Einstein went back and tried to change the equations so that they wouldn't imply that the universe was expanding. Then Hubble, with these observations, proved that it is, and Einstein turned sharply around and described this picture of the expanding universe as one of the most beautiful things he'd ever encountered. And that became a fundamental principle of astrophysics. The universe was expanding, but the expansion was slowing down. Now, everyone accepted that theory for 70 years until there was a problem. There was definitely a moment when we realized that something um, very weird was going on, something very surprising. Um, but our initial response to this was, oh, this must be a mistake. This is Adam Reese. He's a professor of physics and astronomy at Johns Hopkins. And in 1998, he made an observation that had to be a mistake. Really, you make so many mistakes. I make 100 mistakes a day um, working in science. Uh, that's your first thought. That it, it, it was just a mistake that wouldn't go away after a while. And at exactly the same time, in a different lab, in a different part of the country, another scientist was coming to the same weird conclusion is Adam Reese. First of all, does, does this sound good right now, or is the sound echoey? It's all Perlmutter. And I'm a professor of physics at Berkeley and a, a senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Perlmutter and Reese led different teams of scientists who thought they made the same mistake at the same time. It happened while they were observing distant supernovas to measure changes in the universe over time. So they, after they analyzed the data, both teams found that the expansion is not slowing down over time. It's speeding up over time. Now, if this was true, it would be groundbreaking. Because remember, for decades, everyone knew the expansion of the universe was slowing down. That was how you learned about this when you studied physics, when you were a student, right? Oh, absolutely. This is bread and butter material that you learn. Now you learn it as an undergraduate. I learned it as a graduate student. But to say the expansion of the universe was speeding up? This had to be a mistake. It was such a crazy idea that Saul Perlmutter and Adam Reese could hardly believe their own data. Yes. 
It was a crazy idea. Um, you had to report what it looked like the universe was doing. Right. So you're looking at results, but your assumption is that probably something must be wrong. Maybe there's some, you know, sneaky effect that we're both getting tripped up by. You just figure, well, obviously, once we finish doing all the calibration, cross-checking all of the uh, different parts of the, of the program, the data you know, will end up looking more like what we expect. We didn't think the first time we saw it, wow, the universe is accelerating, you know, we're going to win a Nobel Prize. We were aware that we were going to have to be absolutely sure that we were right because it was such a major issue. Anything we said about this, we'd, we'd have to go back up and show that we had checked every possible way in which it could be wrong that we could imagine. Now remember, it was Einstein a century earlier who told a fellow scientist who pointed this out, he said, your math is correct, but your physics is abominable. You, you can't, can't always trust, trust the, the equations. equations. Literally, it's as if someone said to you, throw an apple up in the air and it's going to go up faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And, and, faster and it was faster just faster a sense faster of this can't be right. Faster and faster and faster and faster. You'd say, that's crazy. It was crazy. But remember, there were two teams. Both coming to the same result. Independently of the other. So it's very convincing when different lines of investigation are all pointing to the same result. And within a few years, other research teams began to verify those results. And that's when we started seeing other experiments looking at the universe in totally different ways getting the same results. And that's when you say, this is the way it is. I mean, we can't, this isn't going to go away. And that mistake that refused to go away, it earned Adam Reese and Saul Perlmutter the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2011. So what does that mean for us? Well, Brian Green answered that question when he gave his TED Talk, and you'll hear some sound from a video he played on the TED stage. You see, we learned that our universe is not static, that space is expanding, that that expansion is speeding up all by carefully examining faint pinpoints of starlight coming to us from distant galaxies. But because the expansion is speeding up, in the very far future, those galaxies will rush away so far and so fast that we won't be able to see them. Not because of technological limitations, but because of the laws of physics. The light those galaxies emit, even traveling at the fastest speed, the speed of light, will not be able to overcome the ever-widening gulf between us. So astronomers in the far future, looking out into deep space, will see nothing but an endless stretch of static, inky, black stillness. And they will conclude that the universe is static and unchanging and populated by a single central oasis of matter that they inhabit, a picture of the cosmos that we definitively know to be wrong. Now maybe those future astronomers will have records handed down from an earlier era like ours, attesting to an expanding cosmos teeming with galaxies, but would those future astronomers believe such ancient knowledge? Or would they believe in the black, static, empty universe that their own state-of-the-art observations reveal? I suspect the latter. Does that ever f make you sad? Um, I guess it does a little bit. I mean, when I imagine we're able to sustain life on this planet for billions of years, and in some ways, there are lots of ways to feel sad about the small moment, that fleeting moment that we get to see and all the things that we would miss. And uh, if there are cosmologists someday that want to make the kinds of measurements we have, they will look out and the landmarks uh, will be gone. I mean, that's what the galaxies are. 
you know, the mile markers of the universe for us. It doesn't make me sad because what I think of is how amazing it is that we little tiny puny creatures who are just crawling around the surface of this little planet around a nondescript star in the outskirts of an ordinary galaxy, that we've been able to figure this stuff out. That, to me, how should I say, it gives me a sense of connection to the universe, a kind of sense of partnership with the cosmos, if you will, that I find thrilling. Brian Green. Of course, we did leave out one thing here. If the universe is expanding outward, what's beyond it? Brian Green returns later in the show to answer that question. By way of a hint, consider something he used to do when he was a little kid. He would stand in his room in between two mirrors, each facing the other. It's the effect I think we've all experienced. When you have two mirrors that are facing one another, you put any object in between, and it gets reflected back and forth, back and forth between the mirrors. And I would sort of think to myself what it would be like to have a parallel reality out there where there's a version of me, but one that had a mind and an ability to do things different from the one that I experience. Why there may be other copies of you, other copies of me, other copies of everything you know. Our show today, The Wonders Above Us. Next up, the asteroid hunter and his quest to save the Earth. Apophis is an asteroid. It was discovered in 2004, and it's going to pass by the Earth in April of 2029, and it's going to pass us so close that if it's just right, the Earth's gravity will bend it just enough that seven years later, Apophis is going to hit us. I'm Guy Raz. More peering into space in a moment on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org. NPR's Life Kit wants to help you make changes that actually stick this new year. From how to do dry January to how to start a creative habit, we've got new episodes all month to help you start the year off right. New episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Listen and subscribe to Life Kit. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Do you look up at the sky every night? When I go outside and it's clear, yeah, I look up. It's, uh, it's a habit, and it's something I wish more people did. Uh, you may see something that will profoundly affect you. Jupiter and Saturn, Venus... Uh, the constellations, there's some talk. There's a very bright comet that may swing by the Earth later in 2013 that could be extremely bright. It could be, you know, one of these once-in-a-lifetime comets. Uh, and if you never look up, you'll miss that. That's Phil Plate. He's an astronomer and a science writer, and he wants you to pay attention to asteroids for a simple reason. We are bombarded every day. There's 100 tons of material in the form of very, very, very small grains of rock, like sand. And, and you see these every night. If you go out and look up and wait an hour, you'll probably see two or three shooting stars. That's what this stuff is. And 100 tons sounds like a lot, but you have to realize the Earth is 
6.6 sextillion tons. Hmm. So uh, you, you could bombard the Earth every day with 100 tons of stuff for a gazillion years and not really add even a fraction of the weight that we have here. The real problem isn't the amount. It's how it's delivered. When, when you have 100 tons and you spread it out over the vast surface area of the Earth, it's not a big deal. But if you collect several hundred tons into a single rock and then let it hit the Earth, that's when you start getting into trouble. And that's the sort of thing I'm worried about. Now, there's a very specific rock Phil Plate is worried about. And that rock has a name, which Phil Plate described in his TEDx talk in Boulder. You've probably heard about the asteroid Apophis. If you haven't yet, you will. Um, Apophis is an asteroid. It was discovered in 2004. It's roughly 250 yards across, so it's pretty big, big size, you know, bigger than a football stadium. And it's going to pass by the Earth in April of 2029, and it's going to pass us so close that it's actually going to come underneath our weather satellites. The Earth's gravity is going to bend the orbit of this thing so much that if it's just right, the Earth's gravity will bend it just enough that seven years later, on April 13th, which is a Friday, I'll note, in the year 2036, you can't plan that kind of stuff, Apophis is going to hit us. It will hit us. Now... That was the thinking uh, a few years ago. Now, the thing is, the orbit of this object in 2029 is not precisely known. Hmm. We do know very well that it's not going to hit us, but by exactly how much, we don't know. And if it gets a little bit closer than we expect, by, by literally you know, a mile or less, um, the Earth's gravity will bend the orbit a lot. And then seven years later, it'll miss us. And if it's, if it's too far away by, I don't know, a mile, it's probably even less than that. Seven years later, again, it will miss us. But if it's right down the pipe, if it hits this bullseye in space, which is what we call a keyhole, it passes through that area, then the Earth's gravity is exactly enough to bend the orbit such that seven years later, this thing will come back and hit us. So imagine you're outside that day and you're looking up. Given that it's moving at... 20 miles per second. And that's a guess. It could be moving faster or slower. And the atmosphere is very roughly 100 miles high, and it's coming in at an angle. Uh, there might be five or six, seven, eight seconds, something like that, where you'd see this thing coming in if you happen to catch it early on. So you'd have several seconds to go, what? And then there would be a tremendous flash of light. You might see the explosion. It would look very much like a nuclear bomb. You'd see a mushroom cloud, uh, and then a shockwave would come rumbling through the ground. A few seconds later, followed by the compression of air. The shockwave through the air. And um, after that, uh, you know, debris raining down, uh, all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of craziness. And it gets worse the bigger these things are. At 250 meters across, Apophis is nowhere near as big as the six-mile-wide asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. But it would still obliterate everything within a couple hundred miles. And if it lands near a major city, that would be bad. Now, the odds of that happening are one in a million, roughly. Very, very low odds. So I personally am not lying awake at night worrying about this at all. I don't think Apophis is a problem. In fact, 
Apophis is a blessing in disguise because it woke us up to the dangers of these things. This thing was discovered just a few years ago and could hit us a few years from now. It won't, but it gives us a chance to study these kinds of asteroids. We didn't really necessarily understand these keyholes, and now we do, and it turns out that's really important. Because how do you stop an asteroid like this? What Phil Blake points out is that we can't move the Earth. At least not easily, but we can move a small asteroid. And it turns out we've even done it. That was back in 2005. NASA launched a space probe called Deep Impact right into the path of a comet, which was orbiting the sun. At 10 miles per second, 20 miles per second. We shot a space probe at it and hit it. Okay, imagine how hard that must be, and we did it. That means we can do it again. If we, need, if we see an asteroid that's coming toward us, and it's headed right for us, and we have two years to go, boom, we hit it. <laughs> The problem is, what happens if you you hit this asteroid, you've changed the orbit, you measure the orbit, and then you find out, oh yeah, we just pushed it into a keyhole, and now it's going to hit us in three years. Well, my opinion is, fine, okay? It's not hitting us in six months, that's good. Now we have three years to do something else. And you could hit it again, that's kind of ham-fisted. You might just push it into a third keyhole or whatever. So you don't do that. And this is the part, it's the part I just love. After the big macho, bam, we're going to hit this thing in the face. Then we bring in the velvet gloves. Little Prince. There's a group of scientists and engineers and astronauts, and they call themselves the B612 Foundation. For those of you who've read The Little Prince, you understand that reference, I hope. Little Prince who lived on an asteroid, it was called B612. Shine for me again, Little Prince. We'll go up. These are smart guys, astronauts, like I said, engineers. If we see an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth and we have enough time, we get closer and closer and closer. Then what we do is we launch a probe. It doesn't have to be huge, a couple of tons, not that big. And you park it near the asteroid. You don't land on it, because these things are tumbling end over end. It's very hard to land on them. Instead, you get near it. The gravity of the asteroid pulls on the probe. Closer and closer and closer. And the probe has a couple of tons of mass. It has a little tiny bit of gravity. But it's enough that it can pull the asteroid. And you have your rockets set up. And you basically, these guys are connected by their own gravity. And if you move the probe very slowly, very, very gently, you can very easily finesse that rock into a safe orbit. And closer, and closer, all the time. And we have the technology to do this. This probe actually can't use chemical rockets. Chemical rockets provide too much thrust, too much push. The the probe would just shoot away. We invented something called an ion drive, which is a very, very, very low thrust engine. It generates the force a piece of paper would have on your hand. Incredibly light, but it can run for months and years, providing that very gentle push. If anybody here is a fan of the original Star Trek, they ran across a, an alien ship that had an ion drive, and Spock said they're very technically sophisticated. They're 100 years ahead of us with this drive. Yeah, we have an ion drive now. We don't have the Enterprise, we got an ion drive now. Spock. Um, so that's the difference between us and the dinosaurs. This happened to them. 
It doesn't have to happen to us. The difference between the dinosaurs and us is that we have a space program and we can vote. And so we can change our future. We have the ability to change our future. 65 million years from now, we don't have to have our bones collecting dust in a museum. Thank you very much. That's the astronomer Phil Plate from his TEDx talk in Boulder, Colorado. TEDx events, by the way, take place in communities around the world. To find out how you can organize TEDx in your city or region, visit TED.com. With every smile, you clear the air so I can see. Oh, little prince, don't... Hey, Phil, it's Guy. It's uh, Guy here. How's it going? Oh, hey, thanks for calling. So I, I understand you have an update for us. Yeah, we have some good news. There was a near pass of Apophis in January of 2013, and a bunch of people observed it, including with a, uh, a radio telescope, which gives really precise measurements of the position of this thing. And they found out in 2029, it's going to not pass through the keyhole. Uh, in other words, in 2036, the, the big date when we thought maybe, maybe it might hit, it's, it's going to miss. And it's going to miss by a lot, actually, about 20 million kilometers, which is 50 times farther away than the moon. So we are pretty much safe from this particular rock for a long time. That's, that's, that's great news. Yeah, I'm quite happy about this. Is a part of you a little bit disappointed, though? I mean, I mean it would be kind of cool if it did hit, I guess. And I mean, if, if you were on the safe side of the Earth. No. <laughs> no. Um, now, look, you know, if one of these things could hit the moon, that would be awesome. We could get a good look at it. We could see everything that happens. We could test out all of our ideas about impact energies and all that kind of stuff, and we'd be perfectly safe, and we'd have a front row seat to this awesome event. That would be great, and nobody gets hurt. Uh, you just can't do anything like that anywhere on Earth. Mm. Again, I'm very, very happy with this right now. So, so I guess you can take some time off now, right? Well, I wish, but this isn't the only rock out there. There are plenty more, and there are quite a few whose orbits need to be refined better. And some of these overlap where the Earth is going to be, and they could potentially hit us. Apophis is a case where, you know, yay, it's going to miss. But there's a long list of other rocks out there that we need to be keeping our eyes on. All right, cool. Thanks, Phil. Cool. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You can find Phil's blog at Slate.com. It's called Bad Astronomy. Our show today, The Wonders Above Us and In a Moment, listening for signs of life in our galaxy and maybe even beyond. We're peering into space here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. When did you um, first start looking at the stars? I got fascinated by the stars when I was so about eight years old. Uh, uh, before we keep going, can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Jill Tarter, and I'm a radio astronomer. Okay, thank you. Uh, please continue with the story. We'd go visit my aunt and uncle on the Keys and 
the west coast of Florida. And it's really dark there. And I'd walk along the beach at night with my dad, and he'd show me the constellations. And I'd look up, and I'd, I don't know, it just seemed to me that up there, looking at those stars, that there was probably another little creature walking or scurrying or moving along an ocean beach on their planet, seeing seeing our sun in their sky as a star and wondering what was out there, just the way I was wondering what was out there. Do you still wonder that? Of course. That's the greatest thing about being a scientist and an astronomer is that you never have to grow up. You never have to stop asking why. You get to pose questions and try and find answers. And that's exactly how Jill opened her TED Talk. So my question, are we alone? Is it really just us? Are we alone in this vast universe of energy and matter and chemistry and physics? What if out there others are asking and answering similar questions? What if they look up at the night sky at the, at the same stars but from the opposite side? Would the discovery of an older cultural civilization out there inspire us to find ways to survive our increasingly uncertain technological adolescence? Might it be the discovery of a distant civilization and our common cosmic origins that finally drives home the message of the bond among all humans? Whether we're born in San Francisco or Sudan or close to the heart of the Milky Way galaxy, we are the products of a billion-year lineage of wandering stardust. We, all of us... We actually, as humans, have this very, very intimate connection with the cosmos. If you think about the molecules of hemoglobin in your blood, there's a lot of iron there. And that iron in the hemoglobin molecule was created, it was manufactured in nucleosynthesis inside a massive star that blew up statistically about 8 billion years ago. So inside you are the remains of a stellar explosion. Stardust in our veins. Absolutely. You are made of stardust. Everything that we know of is made of stardust. And without the stars and without the long history of the universe evolving to form galaxies and stars, there wouldn't be us. If we got that concept in our minds that that we're made of stardust um, and we could take a few moments in our day to think, on that cosmic scale, to sort of step back and take a look at the big picture, to see that Earth is just one tiny little planet in the corner of one small galaxy in a very, very big universe. I think that would help us to understand that really, all of us here on Earth, we're all the same when compared with something else out there in the cosmos. For about a decade, Jill Tarter ran SETI. It stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And the scientists at SETI have been listening to signals from outer space since the mid-1980s. 
they've been listening for anything out there, hoping that someone or something might be trying to reach us. SETI doesn't presume the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. It merely notes the possibility, if not the probability, in this vast universe, which seems fairly uniform. The numbers suggest a universe of possibilities. Our sun is one of 400 billion stars in our galaxy, and we know that many other stars have planetary systems. We've discovered over 350 in the last 14 years. And if even all of the planetary systems in our galaxy were devoid of life, there's still 100 billion other galaxies out there, altogether 10 to the 22 stars. An impossible number to comprehend, the number one followed by 22 zeros. That's how many possible stars could be out there. So if the odds seem to favor the possibility that there is something out there, how's the search coming along? More from Jill Tarter in a moment. I'm Guy Raz. We're peering into space, looking up at the wonders above us here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air from WHYY and NPR. We do long-form interviews with journalists breaking the big news stories and with the authors, filmmakers, and musicians behind the best in pop culture. So listen and subscribe. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, we're peering into space looking at the wonders right above us. As we've been hearing, astronomer Jill Tarter's been trying to find the answer to the question, are we alone? I mean, there must be life out there among the billions of planets and galaxies in our single universe, right? As a scientist, I can't say there has to be. It is possible that we are singular, that in all of this vast universe, the only place that the laws of physics and chemistry created creatures who can look up and wonder where they came from is here on Earth. Statistics would argue against that, but we don't have the evidence. And that's what this search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, is all about. Let's look. Let's do an experiment. Let's do an observation to try and answer this question. But, I mean, we've been sending signals out there to, to them for a long time, right? Radio broadcast. Berlin has fallen. Television leakage. On our broadcast tonight under new Radars. This kind of signal has been leaving the planet. I'm not a crook. Unintentionally. Oh, roughly 100 years. So there's a noise bubble with the Earth at its center that is getting bigger. That's a hot shot. Somebody grab it. We're saying 
One light year every year. It grows in its radius. Cuba's Fidel Castro. What if some, some kind of intelligent life has actually been sending us signals, you know, like we're receiving them, and we just don't have the technology to detect those signals? Is it possible? Is it possible we're looking for the wrong thing? Oh, yeah, unfortunately, that's absolutely possible. Suppose they're sending us zeta rays. We don't know what zeta rays are, but perhaps there's something, physics that we don't yet understand, technology that we haven't yet invented, that is absolutely perfect for interstellar communication. But we're just too primitive to know about it yet. So what should you do? Should you just stop what you're doing? Stop using the technology you have? No, I don't think so. I think at any moment you should do what you can with the technology you have in hand and then figure out how to survive, how to stay around long enough as a technological civilization until you do detect Zeta rays. Even our nearest star, the sun, its emissions suffer the tyranny of light speed. It takes a full eight minutes for its radiation to reach us. And the nearest star is 4.2 light years away, which means its light takes 4.2 years to get here. And the edge of our galaxy is 75,000 light years away. And the nearest galaxy to us, 2.5 million light years. That means any signal that we detect would have started its journey a long time ago. And a signal will give us a glimpse of their past, not their present, which is why Phil Morrison calls SETI the archaeology of the future. It tells us about their past, but detection of a signal tells us it's possible for us to have a long future. Over the millennia, we've seen where tribalism leads. We've seen what happens when we divide an already small planet into smaller islands. And ultimately, we actually all belong to only one tribe, to Earthlings. And SETI is a mirror, a mirror that can show us ourselves from an extraordinary perspective and can help to trivialize the differences among us. If SETI does nothing but change the perspective of humans on this planet, then it will be one of the most profound endeavors in history. Thank you. There's this idea that if we find life elsewhere, that that we here on Earth wouldn't feel so lonely. I don't have that sense of loneliness. I only have a sense of wonder and wanting to know the answer about whether the laws of chemistry and physics that operated here to produce an intelligent species, whether they did it elsewhere. It seems to me quite reasonable that given similar conditions, chemistry and physics are going to work out the same way. And so I'm not lonely. I'm just curious. Suppose that within this solar system, when we have the capability, we detect that life originated somewhere else in this one tiny planetary system, right? A second genesis. Well, that tells you that life is going to happen everywhere where conditions are anywhere similar. 
We're going to know that life is ubiquitous. Uh, Someday, in our future as humanity, we may, in fact, venture to the stars, if that is possible, and we may detect life that way, or detect intelligent life that way. There's a great adventure awaiting us, and I think that we should embrace it and not be frightened by it. Astronomer Jill Tarter, she ran SETI for a decade. In 2009, she won the TED Prize, a grant of $100,000, to help her expand her search for life beyond Earth. To find out more about how her search is going, visit ted.npr.org. Okay, so about 400 billion stars and at least that many planets in our own Milky Way galaxy, right? But what if we could go beyond that radius or even further? What if the universe, the totality of existence, isn't actually everything? Well, at the beginning of the show, we heard the story about the Nobel Prize winning discovery that changed our understanding of the universe. The discovery in the late 1990s that the expansion of the universe wasn't slowing down as everyone believed, but that it was getting faster every second. And to learn that it was speeding up, literally, it's as if someone said to you, throw an apple up in the air and it's going to go up faster and faster and faster but and faster. But why? And faster and faster Brian Green, the physicist at Columbia University, asked that question in his TED Talk. If you threw an apple up into the sky and it kept going up but getting faster and faster? You'd want to know why. What's pushing on it? Similarly, the astronomers' results are surely well-deserving of the Nobel Prize, but they raised an analogous question. What force is driving all galaxies to rush away from every other at an ever-quickening speed? The most promising answer comes from an old idea of Einstein's. You see, we are all used to gravity being a force that does one thing, pulls objects together. But in Einstein's theory of relativity, gravity can also push things apart. How? Well, according to Einstein's math, if space is uniformly filled with an invisible energy, sort of like a uniform, invisible mist, then the gravity generated by that mist would be repulsive. It's called dark energy. We don't quite know why it's repulsive. It is. And we don't know why it's everywhere. But it is. Everywhere. Absolutely. And there's a number, right? There's a specific number amount of dark energy, and we've measured this, that we can associate with our universe? That's right, and that's the the big, huge mystery to us. We've measured the amount of dark energy, assuming that's the right explanation, and it's a decimal point followed by roughly 122 zeros and then a one, which is such a strange number. It's the kind of number that we don't typically encounter when we do physics or mathematics. This number is small. Expressed in the relevant units, it is spectacularly small. And the mystery is to explain this peculiar number. We want this number to emerge from the laws of physics, but so far, no one has found a way to do that. Now, you might wonder, should you care? Maybe explaining this number is just a technical detail of interest to experts, but of no relevance to anybody else. Well, it surely is a technical detail, but some details really matter. 
Some details provide windows into uncharted realms of reality, and this peculiar number may be doing just that, as the only approach that so far made headway to explain it invokes the possibility of other universes. Other universes. And by focusing on that number, scientists might not be asking the right question. Kepler, back many centuries ago, asked a seemingly natural question, which is why is the Earth 93 million miles from the sun? Back in the 17th century, Johannes Kepler was obsessed with this question. 93 million miles. 93 million miles. Why is the Earth 93 million miles from the sun? He wanted to find some explanation where he could do some mathematics and at the end of it, out would pop 93 million miles. So, as if there was some deep, sacred law in the universe that could explain that number, like like the dark energy number? That's right. And he looked for explanations, but never found any. And now we know that he was, in fact, asking the wrong question. Because there is no answer to why the Earth or any given planet is a particular distant from its host star. It can be at any distance. And it's just the vagaries of the way in which a planetary system forms that determines whether a planet is at one place or another. The real question that Kepler should have been asking is, why do we humans find ourselves on a planet 93 million miles from our star instead of any of the other possible distances that could be realized? That's a question we can answer. We live at that distance on that planet where the conditions are hospitable to our form of life. That is the right question and that is the right answer. Which brings us to Brian Greene's big idea that like Kepler four centuries earlier, we may be asking the wrong question about the nature of our expanding universe and the dark energy driving that expansion. The number, the amount, it might not be unique or even special because our universe, it could be just one of many universes collected together in one massive multiverse. And there are mathematical models that lay this out. If you study the multiverse, you find that it's very natural that the other universes would also have dark energy, but that the amount of dark energy they have would be different from the amount of dark energy that we have. And in fact, if you examine a realm that has a very different amount of dark energy, the repulsive push from a greater amount of dark energy is so strong that it blows apart planets and stars before they even get a chance to form. So the only universe that we humans can exist in is a universe where there's a small amount of dark energy, 122 zeros, and then a one, allowing galaxies and planets to form. So it's a new kind of explanation, one that makes people uncomfortable. It sort of attributes it a little bit to a cosmic accident. All these possibilities are out there, and we live in the one where the conditions are hospitable to our form of life. So to pull it all together, we need a mechanism that can actually generate other universes. Because such a mechanism has been found by cosmologists trying to understand the Big Bang. You see, when we speak of the Big Bang, we often have an image of a kind of cosmic explosion that created our universe and set space rushing outward. But there's a little secret. 
The Big Bang leaves out something pretty important. The Bang. It tells us how the universe evolved after the Bang, but gives us no insight into what would have powered the Bang itself. And this gap was finally filled by an enhanced version of the Big Bang theory. It's called inflationary cosmology, which identified a particular kind of fuel that would naturally generate an outward rush of space. The fuel is based on something called a quantum field, but the only detail that matters for us is that this fuel proves to be so efficient that it's virtually impossible to use it all up, which means in the inflationary theory, the Big Bang giving rise to our universe is likely not a one-time event. But if we just happen to live in one universe, I mean, if our universe is infinite, if it's infinite, it's the totality of existence. So how could you have other universes beyond it? Well, remarkably, you can. And the math is very clear on this, that you can have infinite universe after infinite universe after infinite universe all populating a larger cosmic domain that would embrace them all. It could be that there's a big, giant cosmic bubble bath with bubble after bubble after bubble being universe upon universe upon universe. Now, the strange idea there, I'll just interject, is when I say a bubble for a universe, that seems to suggest that it's finite in size, but the wonders of general relativity are such that a realm can appear finite from the outside, but if you're in that universe, in that bubble, it can appear infinitely big. And that's how you can have a collection of infinitely big universes all within some larger domain. So the bottom line is, our best theories of how our universe got started suggest that the Big Bang may not have been a unique event, that there may be many Big Bangs, each giving rise to its own expanding domain, our universe just being one of many physicist Brian Greene. Here's one more thing to think about. The next time you're looking up at the sky, the next time you soak in the wonder, the possibility out there, the math that predicts the multiverse also suggests it could contain an infinite number of universes, which means theoretically there could be copies of our universe somewhere out there, exact copies of identical universes that were born under identical conditions and unfolded and evolved in exactly the same way ours did copies of the Earth and the solar system and even individual people and individual events, like this conversation with Brian Greene. In a vague sense, yes. The multiverse tells us in ways that, look, we find mind-blowing ourselves and we're not in any way sure it's right, but the multiverse idea suggests that that notion that there might be other worlds out there, other universes out there, maybe with copies of ourselves, that potentially could be true. Hey, hey, no, 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 even the universes collide. Hey, 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 no, 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 even the universes collide. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brett Bachman, Megan Kane, and Neva Grant, with help from Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour 
from NPR. Let's go, let's go.